Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On today's show, fact versus fiction in the life of President George H.W. Bush. We speak to historian and author Gerald Horn. In an utterly cynical move, and he should have known better, as a CIA director, he was involved up to his eyeballs in covert actions in Southern Africa, collaborating with the apartheid regime of South Africa. And public education advocate Diane Ravitch reveals how the so-called school choice movement, boosted by Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, was born in segregationist white academies of the South. I think in all of these situations, the basic rule should be follow the money. The Walton family is now worth $175 billion. The Walton family has opened more charter schools than any other institution or group in the country. All that and much more coming up. Unlike commercial television, this event is not sponsored by ExxonMobil. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And between the sacking of Mark Lamont Hill by CNN last week for telling the truth about the apartheid state of Israel to this week's coverage of omission on the life of George Herbert Walker Bush, it's clear more than ever that corporate media is not even pretending to distribute news. But here we are all about that news. And let's start with an update on Professor Hill, whose eloquent Palestine solidarity speech at the United Nations we played in full on last week's show. More than 30 members of the faculty at Temple University, where Hill teaches, have signed an open letter voicing no confidence in the chairman of the board of the university, Patrick O'Connor. They said in the letter that O'Connor, in attacking Hill and even calling for his firing, is violating Hill's right to academic freedom, contained in the school's contract with its professors. The faculty members wrote in part, quote, We are faculty at Temple University writing in support of Mark Lamont Hill's academic freedom to express his views on the Israeli occupation of Palestine. We thought his arguments were passionate, considered, and thoughtful, and respected the humanity of Palestinians and Israelis. Regardless if we agree or disagree with him, we support his freedom to espouse his views. The letter continues, If anyone is guilty of violating Temple's clause on academic freedom, it is O'Connor. His comments were not restrained, he did not show respect for Hill's opinions, and he flagrantly misrepresented his views as those of everyone at Temple. Most egregiously, O'Connor undermined academic freedom by implying that firing Hill was desirable and or in process. Academic freedom is a bedrock principle of academia. O'Connor has betrayed that principle, and we have no confidence in his leadership of the board." To listen to Hill's complete speech at the UN, go to our website on thegroundshow.org. And this week, incoming freshman member of Congress, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, continued to show her leadership on the issue of climate change. Speaking about her Green New Deal resolution on Monday night, she compared it to the New Deal of the 1930s at a packed town hall sponsored by Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. 
you know, when we think about where we were when the New Deal was established. We were a nation in depression, in Great Depression. We were a nation on the brink of war. We saw the rise of fascism creeping across in Europe. And no one would thought that a nation so poor, so scarce, and, and so in such dire straits as we were in that time could pursue such a bold economic agenda. But we chose to do it anyway. We had the courage to do it anyway. And that is what this moment demands of us right now. That's what we have to do. We have to, this is going to be the great society, the moonshot, the civil rights movement of our generation. That is the scale. That is the scale of the ambition that this movement is going to require. The town hall occurred the same week that the Senate confirmed a fossil fuel defender, Bernard McAmey, to sit on the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And as new research shows that after being flat for three years, carbon emissions are actually increasing and have done so during the past two years. Even though she is not yet sworn in, Ocasio-Cortez has already released a resolution for a Green New Deal to aggressively develop non-fossil fuel sources of energy while creating good-paying jobs for millions of Americans. And a follow to our story last week about the jobs and services at the planned new hospital for Wards 7 and 8 in D.C., the D.C. Council voted Tuesday to require that George Washington University Hospital owned by Universal Health Services, honor union contracts and employ health care workers from the current hospital, United Medical Center. The council also voted to require the new hospital to allow Howard University medical students and doctors to practice at the hospital as they do now. In response to the vote, George Washington University Hospital has indicated that they may withdraw from the deal. Yane Barner, vice president of 1199 United Healthcare Workers East, which represents staff members at UMC, told on the ground that the community objects to the fact that GWU is not required to adhere to the same processes of transparency and community hearings to build the new hospital. And as part of the deal, a new 270-bed facility at its current Northwest D.C. location. Quote, we are pleased that the council listened to constituents and amended the East End Health Equity Act to protect quality union jobs and is postponing the vote on the act, Barner said. But these changes are not enough. Clearly, this legislation needs more discussion, scrutiny, and improvement, and we are still concerned that there are no guarantees that specialty services like cardiac and cancer care will be offered at the new hospital. Moving forward, the community and workers need to have a seat at the table for health care discussions and decisions that affect them, end quote, Barner said. And finally, in culture and media, as the U.S.-made refugee crisis on the border with Mexico continues, there was a reading in D.C. this week from a new book about U.S. interventions in South America. Chantel James has more. In Plan Colombia, U.S. ally atrocities and community activism John Lindsay Poland details the 50-year U.S.-backed war in the nation of Colombia that claimed over 200,000 lives. At the Potter's House on Tuesday, the author was in conversation with Diana Sanchez, an attorney with the Colombian human rights organization Minga, about the history of U.S. military backing for the atrocities of the Colombian government against civilians. Poland reads from the end of his book here, warning of the lessons and implications of Plan Colombia, 
and the dangers of American exceptionalism. Plan Columbia will not be the last multi-billion dollar commitment by the United States to war through assistance to other nations' military forces. As military policymakers support actors they dub the, quote, good guys, many outcomes of that support have implicated the United States in crimes committed against civilians. But American exceptionalism leads most people in the United States, especially those who are above, to overlook, to forget, or simply to never inquire about those implications. From Northwest D.C., this is Chantal James. Also on Culture and Media, the D.C. Metro Coalition in Solidarity with the Cuban Revolution presents The Return of the Grandma Ship, a fundraiser commemorating the 62nd anniversary of the sailing of the Grandma from Mexico to Santiago de Cuba on December 1st, 1956. And that will happen from 6 to 10 p.m. at the Everlasting Life Cafe in Capitol Heights, Maryland. And finally in Culture and Media, Monday, December 10th is the deadline for the House of Representatives to reverse the FCC's deeply unpopular repeal of net neutrality, which allows equal access to all websites and online properties. The campaign to reverse the repeal of net neutrality is continuing, and for more information, go to deadlinefornetneutrality.com. And those are headlines and happenings. When we come back, Gerald Horn joins us. Stay with us. The hard times, tales from the dark side, evidence of the settlements on my hard drive. Man, I swear my heart died at the end of that car ride. When I saw that checkpoint, welcome to apartheid. Soldiers wear military green at the checkpoint. Automatic guns, that's machine at the checkpoint. Tables not M16s at the checkpoint. Fingers on the trigger, you'll get leaned at the checkpoint. Little children going to dogs and teens at the checkpoint. All your papers better be clean at the checkpoint. Gotta put your finger on the screen at the checkpoint and pray that red light turns. Green at the checkpoint And Martin Luther King had a dream on the checkpoint He wake with loud screams from the scenes at the checkpoint Is Malcolm X by any means at the checkpoint Imagine if your daily routine was the checkpoint And Martin Luther King had a dream on the checkpoint He wake with loud screams from the scenes at the checkpoint Is Malcolm X by any means at the checkpoint Imagine if your daily routine was the checkpoint Separation walls, that's the this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivera. Well, after public funeral services here in D.C. on Wednesday for the late President George Herbert Walker Bush, a private service was held on Thursday in Texas, and afterward, Bush's casket was carried to a family burial plot at Bush's presidential library on the campus of Texas A&M University in College Station, Texas. The final services for the 41st president follows a week of 24-hour mainstream media coverage praising Bush for his quote-unquote decency and civility and for being a lifelong public servant. It was left to a small number of alternative progressive media outlets and voices to offer historical fact-based coverage of the legacy of Bush's impact on the world. Well, joining me for this discussion is one of those voices on the ground's regular contributor, the prolific author, Gerald Horn, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. Well, first, like I just mentioned, it has been left to alternative media to really take a look at the time period from, I think, 1988 to 1992 when George H.W. Bush was president. 
So I guess I want to first ask you, what's been missing from the news reports that most Americans have heard? Well, what's been missing could fill up this entire hour. I'm in favor, like many others, of scoring points against the current U.S. President, Donald J. Trump. But I'm not in favor of a miscarriage of history, that is to say, elevating the tainted image of George Herbert Walker Bush in order to make these points against Donald Trump. I mean, first of all, look at his family. As is well known, his father, Prescott Bush, was in bed with Nazis during World War II. His grandfather was part of the military-industrial complex, accelerating during World War I, 1914 to 1918. Mr. Bush himself voted against the Civil Rights Act of 1964. He promoted this rather sordid image of Willie Horton uh, seeking to scare white voters by putting forward an image and campaign ads of a so-called black criminal. He elevated Clarence Thomas to the U.S. Supreme Court, the most reactionary member of that court, in an utterly cynical move, and he should have known better. As a CIA director, he was involved up to his eyeballs in covert actions in Southern Africa, collaborating with the apartheid regime of South Africa. But what I find even more troubling in terms of his legacy is that the Bush Presidential Library, where he will be buried alongside his spouse, Barbara Bush, in College Station, Texas, is one of the more secretive of the presidential libraries. And I've basically done research at the mall, which is quite unfortunate because we need to know more about the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 when he was president. We need to know more about the collapse of the Soviet Union in December 1991 when he was president. And it'll take quite a bit of prodding and pressure to get that library to disgorge its secrets. And that's part of the tainted legacy of one George H.W. Bush. So it's interesting that you mentioned that era, the fall of the Soviet Union. At some point, Bush heralded what he called the New World Order. And so I'm wondering if he was president during the first of years of what they called a unipolar world when the U.S. was the only so-called superpower and how he impacted that time. Well, obviously he was critical, but keep in mind as well that he was an ambassador to China at a time when the United States was working out an entente with Beijing on an anti-Soviet basis, which was thought to be a stroke of genius on the part of then U.S. President Richard M. Nixon. But given the fact that the payoff to China was massive direct foreign investment, which has created this gargantuan juggernaut, it may turn out to be the exact opposite. And George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, has that on his record as well. And I had to remember Haiti and the overthrow of the democratically elected government of Jean-Bertrand Aristide during that time. And there were so many interventions around the world during his presidency that you have to kind of look back historically to kind of remember them all in terms of Panama, Haiti, of course, the first Gulf War and the atrocities committed in Iraq and the whole lead up to that in terms of the PR spin to, you know, claim that Saddam Hussein was like killing babies in Kuwait. So but in terms of the what we call the global south now, uh, what what are some of the things that are still having an impact today? Well, I mean, look at Iraq. I mean, Iraq has barely recovered 
perhaps it will never recover. Perhaps it will be difficult for it to recover, not only from the sledgehammer blows inflicted by the first George Bush, but the follow-up by his son in 2003, uh, which created fertile conditions for the rise of religious zealotry, which massacred tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Certainly, Haiti is still reeling from the fact that a progressive president, Mr. Aristide, was dislodged, virtually kidnapped, and dropped off in, in Africa. And look at Panama, the kidnapping, arrest, detention of the leader, Manuel Noriega, manacling him, dragging off him in handcuffs to a prison in the United States. Uh, what country could withstand such a blow? And this is all part of the sordid, tainted legacy of George H.W. Bush. As an historian and someone who has written so many books that have, I think, corrected the narrative, the historical narrative that passes for truth in this country, I'm wondering how, in particular, you look at this coverage as a writer. I start to feel sometimes in D.C. like I'm in the twilight zone when you turn on the TV and you hear, you know, these eulogies, these speeches given this week. Do you find that people generally believe this in terms of their worldview? Are they knowledgeable of the history and just ignoring it in these speeches? Or are they just ignorant of the history? What is it? I think it's mostly the latter. Certainly for those tens of millions who voted for Mr. Trump in the first instance, it's difficult to give them any credit when it comes to intellectual candle power. On the other hand, I have to say that I looked differently at the eulogies towards Mr. Bush as opposed to those leveled at Mr. Reagan. I think it was worse, the eulogies directed at Mr. Reagan. And the reason that I look at the Bush eulogies differently, because as I noted at the top, I think that the anti-Trump media is trying to score points against Donald J. Trump. And I'm all in favor of scoring points against Donald J. Trump. But, of course, the poison in the package is this miscarriage of history in trying to elevate him. And that's what we're left with. That is to say, uh, this poison that is being directed at a goal that many of us could support. That is to say, bringing down Donald J. Trump a peg or two. So I was thinking about the historians that they allow on to, you know, cable news. And I saw just a snippet of a speech given by John Meacham, a presidential historian. And so, you know, as an historian yourself, what are they doing in their work that allows them to, is it just a different worldview that they actually believe that these excursions and invasions around the world are actually good for America or in our interests? Is it just, is it just that simple that we're dealing with people who are imperialists and they are viewing the world as imperialists? I think the simple and short answer is yes. I think that if a person's paycheck is dependent upon a certain worldview, you can expect them to espouse that worldview that keeps those checks being deposited in their bank account. Uh, that may sound cynical, it may sound mercenary, but I'm afraid to say that ultimately that's what it boils down to. Okay, well, I guess that would 
take us all the way back to where we started in terms of the media coverage that we've been subjected to for the past week. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. And Gerald, in addition to the death of George Herbert Walker Bush, which we just discussed, there was the inauguration of a, a new president in Mexico. So why don't you talk about that and its significance now? Well, I have to say, it seems rare and unusual for us to have good news to discuss in our conversations, but this is really good news. The inauguration on December 1 of Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador as the new president of Mexico, elected actually months ago, but there's this interregnum between the election and the inauguration. Uh, Certainly, he's probably the most progressive Mexican leader since President Cardenas of the 1930s, who nationalized Yankee oil interests in Mexico, already he's moving to hike upwards the pensions of the elderly. He's launched a campaign against the impunity that has been enjoyed by too many Mexican leaders. And I guess, and I hope, that he would do something about this uh, recent award to Jared Kushner the U.S. president's son-in-law of Mexico's highest civilian order, which in many ways was a slap in the face of the Mexican people. It was also heartening to see that President Maduro of Venezuela was at the inauguration. Already you can see taking shape a renewed progressive bloc in Latin America, including, of course, the Cubans, the Bolivians, the Venezuelans, and perhaps the Nicaraguans as well. This would be juxtaposed to this Yankee bloc led by the United States and including most recently Brazil and their reactionary leader, Mr. Bolsonaro. So this election is very significant. Uh, I would encourage uh, our friends on the left and in the black liberation movement to take delegations to Mexico City to meet with their counterparts. And I say this not only because that's in our self-interest, but also to express solidarity with this new regime, which inevitably will face destabilization from Washington, D.C. Well, well, speaking of destabilization, I saw a news item about Canada arresting a Chinese corporate leader, Meng Wanzhou. And uh, it looked like this leader in the same tech corporation that's been targeted in terms of kind of boycotts by the West. Can you break that down? Well, you're talking about the chief financial officer of Huawei, which is a competitor in terms of smartphones with Apple and is a world leader in terms of telecommunications infrastructure competing with Cisco, uh, amongst other uh, U.S. corporations. I think that this arrest is part and parcel of this new Cold War against China, inaugurated perhaps on October 4th by a speech by Vice President Michael Pence in Washington or a subsequent speech he gave the Asia-Pacific Economic uh, Summit in Papua New Guinea on November 17th. It's a reflection of the fact that Washington is going to find it difficult to compete economically with China. That was the import of a very fascinating op-ed written by former Harvard University President and Treasury Secretary Lawrence Summers in the Financial Times. And what it's left with is this kind of guerrilla warfare 
that is to say, trying to arrest and detain Chinese leaders. Just the other day in a New York City federal court, another Chinese leader was convicted of violating U.S. laws with regard to supposedly offering bribes to an African leader, a Chadian leader. A chief witness against him was a former Senegalese leader, and I don't think that that particular testimony by the Senegalese leader went down very well in light of the fact that China's just funded this massive museum of black civilization in Dakar, which in some ways makes the National African American History Museum in Washington, D.C. seem like the equivalent of the dollar store. So this arrest uh, in uh, Vancouver, Canada, is also putting in jeopardy not only uh, Canada's relations with China, but I would also say it's putting in jeopardy U.S. corporate leaders in China itself, uh, which includes Starbucks, uh, KFC, Apple, Microsoft. Uh, I expect China to retaliate forcefully. The only good news I see coming out of this saga is that the conservative columnist Roger Simon pointed out that if these negotiations that the United States and China are involved in right now to tamp down this trade war don't go very well, the United States probably will be plunged into a deep recession, which could lead to the defeat in 2020 of one Donald J. Trump. Well, we will keep a watch on uh, what's happening with that arrest. And I I saw one report that said that there was a probable extradition to the U.S. So that's worth watching, and we certainly will. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. Mississippi Cindy Hyde-Smith recently won a special runoff election to retain her Senate seat despite having joked about a public hanging. Mississippi was once known as the country's lynching capital. Hyde-Smith's schooling offers context for a comment which is consistent with her past support for the Confederacy. According to the Jackson Free Press, Hyde-Smith was educated at a segregation academy and years later as a parent sent her daughter to another segregation academy. Meanwhile, Governor Phil Bryant, who initially appointed Hyde-Smith to her Senate seat, attended a similar school. I sat down with author and activist Diane Ravitch, who was one of the leading public school advocates. 
I began by asking her about the history of segregation academies, which fueled the school choice movement, which is still going strong today. Well, the school choice movement was born in the South in the 1950s and 60s as a response to the Brown versus Board of Education decision. Uh, Southerners, white Southerners, did not want to desegregate their schools. And so they thought that the answer to uh, preserve segregation would be to have school choice. They would say, if everyone chooses their own school, then whites will choose white schools, blacks will choose black schools, and we can maintain the status quo. And so that's the origin of the school that Cindy Hyde Smith went to. It was created in 1970, and that was the first year in which the courts actually ordered Mississippi to desegregate and prove that it was desegregating. And so the school she went to was created that year. And many of the white Southerners used these segregation academies as a form of school choice. And these days, when people who advocate for charter schools are told of the history of school choice, they get very upset and they deny it, but that is the truth. We're here in D.C., uh, next door in Virginia, in Prince Edward County. They had an interesting response to the Brown versus Board of Ed and being required to integrate schools. Well, as I recall, they closed their schools, and they went for years with no schools. And white kids got an education, and black kids did, did not get an education. We're still paying for those horrible decisions. As I said, we're here in D.C. where charter schools have taken off, as they have in much of the country. But bring us up to today where the latest iteration of school choice is charter schools. Well, charter schools are basically a substitute for vouchers. And the reason that they took off was because so many states had a prohibition against vouchers. The people who are against public schools have found a way to work around even those state constitutions that say you can't send public money to religious schools. About half the states now have voucher programs. But the charter idea originally was that charter schools would be more innovative, they would be more accountable, and they would produce real results. If they didn't produce results, they would close. But what we have seen over the past 25 years is they're not accountable. They don't have, for example, open meetings. Most charter school boards are private boards. They appoint themselves again and again. Uh, so they're not accountable either for money or for ac academics. There are failing charter schools that fail year after year, and no one has come up with an idea of what will replace a, a failing charter school other than another charter school. And uh, they have produced no innovation. The, their idea of an innovation is no excuses, which means to have the kind of harsh discipline and punishment that was commonplace in public schools, let's say, 100 years ago. So that's hardly innovative. It seems to me that it's going backwards. And yet they often enjoy bipartisan support. Republican support may make sense. You're privatizing in some way a public good, but frequently it's, there's Democratic support as well. Well, the reason that charters get Democratic support is, I'd say that there are two reasons. One is because there are a lot of people giving money to Democratic politicians who want privatization of public schools. Uh, there's a group called Democrats for Education Reform, uh, which gives money at the state and local level in political campaigns. And these are Wall Street people who are part of, they call it DEFER, Democrats for Education Reform is DEFER. And DEFER really has nothing to do with the Democratic Party. It just uses the name in its title. The state Democratic Party in both California and Colorado told DEFER to stop taking their name in vain because they're not Democrats. Uh, they support privatization, but of course, DEFER ignored them. And 
the reason that, for example, Governor Cuomo is a strong supporter of charter schools is he gets millions of dollars every campaign from Wall Street hedge fund managers. And when you look at political campaigns around the country, uh, wherever the defers have an opportunity to install somebody who will be pro-charter, they have a list of Democratic politicians. And there are equity investors and hedge fund managers and financial speculators who will shower them with money if they agree to support charter schools. So the political money has been very important in buying Democratic support for privatization of public education, but that doesn't make it democratic. It just makes it a form of political corruption. And I'd say the other reason that Democrats might sign on to the charter school agenda is because of the false narrative that charter schools are about saving poor kids from failing schools. And that's just nonsense because the charter schools are actually more tenuous than public schools. And uh, charter schools come and go. They're like daylilies. They open and they close. What's happening right now is very interesting because the number of applications to open new charter schools has dropped almost to the point of the number of charter schools that are closing every year. Every year there will be 200 to 300 charter schools closing. In the past year, there were about 350 charter schools that opened and 300 charter schools that closed. So we're reaching a point where the churn is consistent and where if kids sign up for a charter school, they may find themselves in a school that closes in the middle of the year or the end of the year because it was too unstable to survive. But again, the Democrats who think that this is helping black and Hispanic children are simply misguided by the propaganda campaign. Because if you really want to know the story about the inefficacy of charter schools, you need only look at Detroit and Milwaukee, two examples where charter schools have had their way. Uh, Detroit, half the schools are charter schools. They're no better than the public schools, and it's the lowest performing city in the country, despite the proliferation of charters. Or you could look at Milwaukee, which has three sectors a charter sector, a voucher sector, and a public sector. They're all about the same size, and they all get dismal results. So there's no answer there. There's just um, an incredible line of uh, propaganda uh, to divert money, public money, away from public schools to what are very often failing non-public schools. We just had a recent election. There was a a blue wave, uh, certainly in the House. Uh, How would you describe the views on uh, charter schools versus public schools of some of the new uh, and and progressive members? I I think it remains to be seen how that shakes out. One of the leaders of the uh, new Democratic caucus is Hakeem Jeffries from Brooklyn. And Hakeem Jeffries is billed as a progressive, but he's very pro-charter because he gets a lot of money from the charter industry. So that concerns me. As for the new members, I think we'll have to see. I know that in New York State, we had a blue wave, a, a real blue wave, and a lot of Republicans were swept out of the legislature, and they were replaced specifically by people who said, we're going to stop charter schools. That was the main issue on which they threw out the Republicans who had been in control of the state Senate as well as a breakaway group of Democrats who took uh, hedge fund money. You know, I think in all of these situations, the basic rule should be follow the money. And follow the money will lead you to equity investors like John Paul Singer, Daniel Loeb. These are billionaires, Michael Bloomberg, but also to uh, the Walton family. The Walton family is now worth $175 billion. The Walton family has opened more charter schools than any other institution or group in the country. They claim credit for one out of every four charter schools in America. The Walton Foundation and the Walton family is deeply, deeply anti-union. 
and they are by no means progressive. They don't even pay their workers a, a living wage. So to say that you're on the side of the Waltons is not a good place for a progressive to be. And just to bring it back around, the charter schools being the latest iteration of school choice and the earliest ones coming in the wake of Brown versus Board of Ed and now the newest senator, Cindy Hyde-Smith, attended a segregation academy. Well, I think that uh, she is, of course, a great supporter of school choice. I mean, the bottom line on school choice is that it is a Republican issue, and I think that it would be very clear-cut if we understood. Betsy DeVos and the DeVos family have been funding school choice all over the country for the past 30 years, and the Koch brothers are very strong supporters of school choice. Uh, at the latest meeting of the, the uh, Koch brothers, where they bring together 700 people, each of whom have contributed at least $100,000, they said that K-12 education was the low-hanging fruit. So when you think about school choice, don't think about this as a progressive issue. Think about it as this is something that Betsy DeVos, the Walton family, and the Koch brothers have been working on for the last 30 years. That's where the divide is and should be. One more thought came to mind. One of the finalists for the education secretary, in addition to Betsy DeVos, was Michelle Ree, who led the charge for school reform here in D.C. Well, school reform is not school reform. School reform should mean... Uh, getting more money for schools, holding on to good teachers, or making sure that you're attracting and retaining the best teachers, and also doing whatever you can to improve public schools. The Michelle Ree version of reform is privatization and harassing teachers. Uh, D.C. probably has the highest teacher turnover rate of any district in the country, and her evaluations did nothing to reduce that. It just made it worse. She said, and I found this quote early on in her tenure that by the time she was done, D.C. would be the best urban district in the country. I don't think there's anyone in the country who believes D.C. is today, 11 years after she started her work. It's certainly not the best urban district in the country, and it has the biggest achievement gaps between blacks and whites and Hispanics and whites of any urban district in the country. So I would say that by any objective measure, privatization and uh, harassing teachers is not a good strategy. Thank you so much, Diana Ravitch. Thank you. It's great to talk to you, Pete. For On the Ground, I'm Pete Tucker. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, this week, California officials announced that some of those who fled the deadly fire in the town of Paradise, which is north of Sacramento, will be allowed to return to their homes or to the site where their homes once stood. The fire, which started on November 8th, was the deadliest in the state's history, killing at least 88 people in a vast, rapidly moving inferno that residents described in biblical terms. 25 people remain missing. And in total, the fire burned 
more than 153,000 acres, 20,000 residences, commercial buildings, and other structures before being 100% contained on November 25th. But people more than 100 miles away, 200 miles away from the fire were also impacted, as On the Ground's environmental justice producer Michelle Roberts discovered in her discussion at the time with another veteran activist. This is Michelle Roberts, and you're on the ground with a phenomenal leader, Pam Cowley, out of San Francisco, California. Pam, how are you today? Oh, I'm fine, Michelle. This is about the fourth day that for us here in California, we are sheltered in place in our house because I'm looking out at the sky right now. And you can't see anything. The air quality here is really bad. And I'm 71 years old. And people like me are being told, do not go outside. And if you do, make it a very short trip and wear your mask. So it's been a rough four days, Michelle. That is horrible. So, Pam, these fires that are happening throughout California, this is not the first time. Yes, this is not the first time, and we don't believe it's going to be the last. A group of us, you know, are are feeling like this is something that we really need to have real frank discussions with and create the political will to really talk about, you know, what's the root of of these fires, these fires of, are sending particulates in the air that's got toxins, you know, asbestos and all kinds of different chemicals that um, we're breathing in. Yeah, so if that's not enough, it's my understanding that you and a group of other folks there out of the area, out of the Bay Area, breathed those particulates and fires to attend a very important meeting at the California Air Resources Board. Tell us about that, Pam. Yes, a wonderful delegation of 60 of us went up to Sacramento to a hearing that's held by the California Air Resources Board and that they would be considering enhancing California's cap-and-trade program, including a program called Tropical Forest Standard. Before I go into that standard, uh, I want to say that the 60 of us that braved this came from all over California and also internationally. Uh, But we were actually going to be 100 of us. We decided that 40 of us should not go to Sacramento because the air quality was at 400, which 500 is like really devastating. And, and the air quality in Sacramento uh, was, was so bad that you choke. And so the mothers and the children that were going to come to this hearing, uh, we encouraged them to stay home. The elderly, we encourage them to stay home. So people like myself and others, although I am 71, we went up there to speak at this hearing in opposition to uh, what the Air Resources Board wants to do to promote this cap-and-trade program. So tell us more about this, Pam. Uh, You were able to speak at this meeting? Yes, I, along with 88 others, I would say about 
of the 88, there was like 25 people in support of this standard, and the rest of us were there in opposition. So, so what is this standard anyway? The standard is called the Tropical Forest Standard. And for us who's been around the block, Michelle, we know this to be the UN Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Degradation Program. It's a program that Gary Brown has renamed so that he could, like he did in Paris, say to me personally, I'm not doing red, which is a lie because all he did was change the name. And so this REDS program allows corporations, polluting corporations like Chevron and Shell, to keep on polluting from their facilities and keep on creating sacrifice zones around the facilities up for the front line. But then they get to become green. They get to become environmentalists when they are now able to buy a forest in California or in uh, the Global South, in Chiapas or Indonesia, a forest, rainforest. They can buy the rainforest and say that they are protecting Mother Earth by buying this forest and saving the trees right there and the whole carbon and oxygen exchange. And, and when they do that, then they can then kind of like say, okay, we have done our part for saving the planet. But basically, they've just bought their way into looking, being so-called green, and then able to continue to pollute and continue to make profits off of the dirty work that they do, the dirty products that they can create. So we were there to say, no, this is not what we feel is appropriate for stopping emissions, addressing the issues of greenhouse gases. This is a false solution that only provides corporations a cover to continue to do what they do. And we were there to say, if you really want to deal with the air quality, then let's start talking about getting those corporations to cap their emissions at the source and to start to create the political will to do that, let's work together to do that, and also look at keeping fossil fuels and other gases in the ground. We have to transition and, and work together on that. And that's what we were there. And these voices uh, were the native people from all over California and including from uh, Chiapas and Ecuador and Brazil, and from Africa. Yes, we were all there, and a very powerful voice together addressing the board. It was an amazing kind of a, a moment, space for us, and uh, yeah, I want to tell you the story is we were able to turn things around, Michelle. Mm -hmm. Wow, so that sounds very powerful. So you were able to turn things around as you have smoldering fires and poor air quality around you. Yet again, it is the people, they say, who are united who must go and face the opposition. Pam, I'm still trying to understand and for the rest of the listening audience to understand how bizarre is it to purchase 
a forest and say you're caring for a forest, but you can have a heavily polluting facility. Pam, they they tell us that we have high-risk facilities here in the United Mm -hmm. States. So you're saying that they they can continue operating their high-risk facilities, but purchase a forest in uh, the global south Mm -hmm. and say they're nurturing the forest and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Isn't that crazy? That's absolutely crazy. Um, and and it, for me, um, I, w- I was there, in, with, and, and it's for us also in California, Michelle. Mm-hmm. And, and so Pam, this, I have this, one other question. When they purchase the forest, it's our understanding some of these high-risk facilities impact communities of color and the poor at disproportionate levels with mm-hmm. very high health impacts, with health yes. disparities. Yes. Are these same corporations responsible for addressing and providing remedy to these health disparities, or is it they just purchased the forest and that's okay? Michelle, you hit the, the nail right on the head. They are allowed to continue to do business as normal, usual, and they have no responsibility to, from whatever profits or whatever they, they get from buying these forests, right, to, uh, responsibility to the local, local communities, none. And so that legacy of what we call environmental racism, right, is able to, to continue. So what I was there with others is to say this legacy of environmental racism, they have expanded it kind of like on steroids by bringing in this concept of buying forests, right? Because this legacy is going to evict the indigenous and the farmers, the stewards of the land in these forests, evict them from the forest right and so that the the corporations can do whatever they want with the forest that they have bought okay and so if they they deem that there are so-called arborists will say oh you know the trees that are in this particular forest they don't really provide enough offsets we can have we have we can have trees that can do greater exchange of carbon to oxygen if we cut down these current trees and grow other trees that are different. Michelle, this is what we talked about when they are allowed to buy these forests, okay, that the, the, in, the indigenous and the stewards of the land are in jeopardy of being kicked off. And this, in terms of process, is, causes a lot of violence because you know if the indigenous are going to be kicked off, they are going to resist. They are going to fight to stay on their land. And this standard is dividing the indigenous from each other. As you know, corporations can go into communities and identify different sectors and offer one side money, right, and and get them to buy on to these kinds of policies and then turn the communities against each other. You know how that works, right, Michelle? Um, yeah. So there's, 
But one of the things that I wanted to be able to highlight when we were there was where I met Isaac Osuka from Nigeria. And what Isaac meant to me, his presence there, was the crisis of capitalism and the climate and the impact that it has had on places in the global south and in Africa. And for me, when I went to Paris uh, for, for the COP21, is where I met the climate migrants from Africa. And for me, meeting people who have been experiencing this kind of policies on their lives for decades already. And this, Isaac explains, is a creeping phenomena that is going worldwide. And it's here in California. And so for us being there, we were there to try to stop it from being adopted by all the other 50 states in the U.S. Right. Because this is just a standard. It's not a law. Okay. This, the Air Board doesn't really have to do this. But Jerry Brown, with his family roots in the oil industry, they need to be able to continue this kind of economy. And then this is one way in which he is trying to appear green, right, with cap and trade and this REDS program. And so even though it's not a law, it's a standard, but this is a sending a message to all the governors throughout the U.S., including your governor in your state, to say, hey, California's going to do it. We're going to do it too. So what we were trying to do was, you know, like how you have that little hole in the dike, <laughs> you know, we wanted to, we wanted to put our finger in that and uh, stop the leak. Wow. What great work. That is incredible, incredible work. You want to know the outcome? Well, yes. we had our two environmental justice allied representatives on the board and they put out a proposal and recommendation that the board vote no to reject the standard. Okay. What happened was Diane Techmorian uh, from San Diego was just eloquent in putting forward why the board should vote no. But what happened was then those words swayed nine of the, the 16 board members. And what they were able to feel comfortable at doing was they did not vote no to reject this, which is what we wanted. But you know what? When we went into this, we thought they were going to vote yes. Okay, Michelle? But what they did was they voted to delay the vote to April. And you know what? This was a win for us because now we get to really go out there and be able to do more education around the falseness of these kinds of solutions and really work between now and April when they hear it again to really build up the ability to create that political will, right? And so uh, we walked in there saying, oh, man, we're going to fight like hell, uh, but, you know, thinking, well, we'll be outside and say, hmm, okay, we gave it our best. Well, we were able to go into the lobby and say, all right, <laughs> We made an impact. We made a difference. And there's going to be a delay in vote and an opportunity to keep organizing. What incredible work. What incredible work. You are on the ground with Michelle Roberts and Pam Talley. 
speaking of voices that resist, going through fires, particulate matters, standing up against the California Air Resources Board, and making sure the vote is delayed. Thank you, Pam Kelly. Thank you for being such a strong warrior for the rights of Mother Earth and her children. Thank you, Michelle. And Michelle Roberts and Pam Tawley, in conversation last month during November 2018, will have the last word on today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. The music we played this hour included The Checkpoint by Jaziri X, To Zion by Lauren Hill, and Bohemia Rhapsody by Oscar Pettiford. You can write us and listen to all of our current and past shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. If you are a listener and are on Facebook, please like our Facebook page, On The Ground Show. On The Ground Show is also on Twitter, and we are on iTunes under the title WPFW On The Ground. And we have a new Patreon page linked on our website. Please visit there and help us to continue to bring you news of real resistance in Washington, D.C., a huge thank you to those who have already subscribed on Patreon. I'm Esther Averam. I'll be speaking from my book, Olokun of the Galaxy, Saturday, December 8th, noon at the Pieces Collective Winter Makers Market, 1758 Park Avenue in Baltimore. And I'll be back there at the same location, December 12th at 6 p.m. At that time, I'll be speaking on the topic, The Black Blackout, how news, movies, and social media erase and frame black and brown narratives. And I'll include the example of the firing of Mark Lamont Hill from CNN. For more information, follow the links on the host page at onthegroundshow.org or check out the Pieces Collective page on Facebook. That's pieces like peace out. (laughs) And that's what I'm saying right now, actually. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Thank you.